The scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You may be seated. Thank you, Lance, for reading our scripture this morning, and Jonathan for leading us in those beautiful songs today. We're always very happy to be together and to join in in this beautiful singing. Wonderful opportunity to come together and worship God, and we're always very grateful for it. If you're visiting with us, we're happy to have you. Encourage you to come back. We'll be back tonight, Lord willing, at 6 o'clock. Encourage you to come and be with us on that occasion. That's a powerful passage, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 6. One of the great books of the Bible, the book of Ephesians. Whenever you think about the church, you think about Ephesians. And he talks so much about the church. Church was in the mind of God before the world ever began. How important it is for all to be in the church, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then living life in 4, 5, and 6. And he finally comes to that point in his conclusion. He says, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, but on the whole armor of God. He's telling us in reality there's a great there. In reality there's a great struggle between good and evil, but that great struggle really has to do for you and your mind and your soul, your heart. Admonishing them to live life faithfully in the church, you've got to be aware of the reality There's a great warfare going on. It's not a physical warfare. It's not a warfare with physical implements of war that we often think about. But nonetheless, it's a real war over our hearts and minds, a spiritual warfare. Think about this warfare. It never lets up. There's no cessation of hostilities. There is no truce. It's a going-on battle day after night, night after night. It never ends. And to help us understand something of the intensity of that warfare, he uses that word wrestle. We do not wrestle against blood. It's not a physical warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. There are a lot of words he could have used here, but he uses this particular word wrestle, which is a word which conveys the idea of close quarter combat. Hand-to-hand combat, hand-to-hand fighting. Humans are trained to kill other humans. That's the nature of things. Today's technology, though, it's not so much hand-to-hand anymore, I suppose. I don't know anything about such things such as that. But with today's technology, a button is pushed and people can be killed way over there. And due to technology... One can never see or hear or know the person that's affected by the weapons of that warfare. It's not like the hand-to-hand kind of combat where you actually see the other person and feel the other person's breath. 
The warfare that we experience today is a different kind of warfare. <clears throat> I remember um, some time ago seeing the movie Saving Private Ryan. I don't know what to think about that movie. I, you may have seen it. Uh, the language of the movie is offensive to me. I didn't like it. But the movie was very realistic. It tried to be very intense. It's not like the old westerns, rock'em, sock'em type of thing in the saloon. Everybody gets up and rides their horse away. And that kind of movie, it's very realistic where there's intense fighting. In one phase of that movie, there's, uh, the American army is defending a bridge. The advancing German army is coming. And there's close hand-to-hand combat. And it's very intense, and there's one point in the movie where they run out of shells, and now they're fighting hand-to-hand. It's a struggle for life. The intensity of the movie is very real in its appearance. It, it gave us the impression of a real-life struggle, and what a terrible struggle that was. Again, I, I don't know what to think about that, the language the intensity of it. I want you to know that with this word, for we do not wrestle against, is a word which is conveying that kind of intensity. The warfare of the children of God is a real warfare. It's not the kind of warfare that is a physical warfare. It's a spiritual warfare for our heart, our soul, and our mind. We've got to ask ourselves, what are we doing? The enemy is a real enemy there. I wish I knew more about it. He does tell me a few things about the enemy. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. I wish I knew more about that. I wish I could answer all your questions about the demons and and that kind of thing that he has in mind here. But I think all of us are agreed in studying this section and paragraph of scripture that he's talking about the demonic forces under leadership of Satan trying to wage war against the church of the living God to destroy the people of God. I get the idea as I read that passage that he's not talking so much about a ragtag street gang either. I get the idea that he's talking about a well-organized military-type warfare against my soul. We don't wrestle this hand-to-hand combat for my soul against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. God didn't reveal everything about that. I wish I knew more about it, but it's well organized. I know enough about it to know that this is a difficult hand-to-hand struggle for my soul and for your soul. In the ancient world, uh, war was a common thing. Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. There is a mountain pass there. It runs all the way from Saudi Arabia down into Egypt, from Asia all the way to Africa. And whoever can control that mountain pass, that mountain road, is going to control all the commerce that goes from those continents. 
Solomon realized that. He had it under, well, under control. He controlled it well. And all the caravans, all the movement from one Asia, from one part of the world to the other, from Asia to Egypt, would have to go through that particular narrow strip, which was in Palestine. Many wars have been fought over Megiddo. Mount Carmel's located there. This mountain pass, if you control Megiddo, then you can control the commerce that goes from that part of the world. John writes about it, Revelation 16 and 16. In our English translations, it comes out Megiddo, Harmageddon. There is no, if you'll allow me a minute to talk a little bit about the intricacies of the language, there is no H as a consonant in the Greek language. There is no H to be translated. It comes out as a rough breathing mark, and the best translators can do is, of course, you can't translate a breathing mark. So the best they can do is Armageddon rather than Harmageddon. Har is the word for mountain. In this particular construction, the mountain of Megiddo. It comes up in our English translations, Armageddon. And the particular denominational speakers and writers that look at this Revelation 16, 16, and this whole discussion about the battle of Armageddon, look upon it as some kind of physical battle off in the future where there's going to be a great clash between good and evil and the people of God against the people of Satan, and there's going to be missiles and tanks and planes and a great clash and an ultimate battle between good and evil. But that's not what John's talking about at all. He's talking about a spiritual battle that we fight every single day. We fight the battle of Armageddon in our lives, whereby we say no to sin and yes to Jesus Christ. We fight the when we decide that we're going to become Christians. It is a serious struggle. The hill and mountain and valley and the mountain of Megiddo today is rather pastoral scene, the breadbasket of Israel. But in ancient times, it knew nothing but warfare. We are involved in a tremendous We are involved in a great struggle for our souls. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. we got a great battle that we face. And Paul says it's important for you to understand the reality of that. It's important for you to understand how real it is that God has created a physical dimension, but he's also created a spiritual dimension beyond our sight and that we don't see it directly as we see the physical dimension, but it's there. And there's a great battle going on for your soul. And you face temptation every day as you fight the battle of Armageddon. Will you decide to be cave in and be for the enemy and surrender the battle that you face on a day-to-day basis. What are my orders? 
He's pretty clear. He tells me in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's my responsibility, you see. The orders have been given. I'm to stand against the great battle that's coming upon me. I've got to say no to that. He emphasizes this order in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. A number of times in the paragraph, he's telling me not only of the reality of the spiritual battle, but he's giving me my marching orders. My marching orders are, I've got to stand fast against the wiles of the devil. He tells me in verse 11 that you need to stand fast. He tells me in verse 13 that you may be able to withstand the e- in the evil day. And then very emphatically in verse 14, stand therefore and resist that kind of onslaught that is coming your way. A number of years ago, on a number of occasions, I have um, had the opportunity to preach in southern Tennessee, southwestern Tennessee, and I preached all in that area in the years gone by. And I remember preaching in Pulaski, Tennessee, and Savannah, Tennessee, and I told Carol one time as we were coming back to Memphis, I said, let's stop in the western portion of Tennessee on the way back. There's a little church building I'd like to visit. I've never seen it before, but I've read a lot about it. Little Methodist church building called Shiloh Meeting House. And as you go to Shiloh, it's a beautiful area with rolling hills and trees and woods and grass. But it wasn't that way April 6 and 7, 1862. Over 150 years ago, one of the great battles of the Civil War was fought on that grassy, rolly hill. 1862, Major General U.S. Grant had under his command 48,000 men. He's headed down to the west side of the Tennessee River. There he's wanting to cross, and he's at Pittsburgh Landing. He's waiting for reinforcements from General Buell. General Buell, also the Union Army, is coming in from the east with 18,000 reinforcements. They did not know that Albert Sidney Johnson of Mississippi was bringing up from that pike 44,000 men of the gray infantry. And there he was supported by, um, by General um, Beauregard of Mississippi. Their goal Beauregard was to surprise Grant at Pittsburgh Landing and push him all the way back out of the state of Tennessee. And they just about did it. Grant's men were totally taken by surprise as Johnson and Beauregard came up the pike from Corinth, Mississippi and attacked at that little place called Shiloh. The Union Army was in They had no idea what was befalling them. They headed back. Grant and his generals were scratching their heads. What are we going to do? We need General Buell here now. 
but he's still coming from the east. And it's going to be tomorrow before he But we may not be able to be here tomorrow because the boys in the gray are making it hot on us and we're in complete rout. Somehow or another, we've got to stop their advance and wait for Buell to get here so that we can have enough reinforcements to withstand this southern attack. And so he sends word to one of his generals, General Prentice. And he tells General Prentice, there's a wagon road down there. I want you to line your men up and reinforce that wagon road. And no matter what happens, stand firm at the wagon road at all hazards. Fight it at the last man. And do not let Johnson's men cross the wagon road. And so they stood there at the wagon road. Carol and I are walking through the national battlefield, and I said, there's a place here I want to see. I want to go to this particular place. And she said, where do you want to go? I said, it's over here on this side here. Somewhere it's over here. And there's a plaque there, the wagon road. It's kind of a lower place, a depression, where General Prentice and his men got down below the surface on the wagon road and stood off the advancement of General Johnson and General Beauregard of Mississippi. General Johnson's men would charge in on the wagon road, and each time they'd be held off and repulsed, and they'd have to retire. And then they'd gather the forces charge the wagon road, and with each charge they would be repulsed. The Union was standing firm. They had their orders. One of the captains of the Gray turned to his commander, and it's kind of a famous saying that's gone down into history. It's like a hornet's nest in there. He said, get ready. We're going to charge it again. Twelve times, southern forces charged the wagon road, and twelve times Union forces withstood that. They reported the matter to General Johnson, and General Johnson said, we're going to bring fire down on them. And so he lined up 62 cannons, And for two solid hours, they were bombarding the wagon road, trying to break the forces of uh, General Prentice. And they could not. It is said it's the largest American military history, whereupon they used 62 cannons to bring fire upon the wagon road over and over again for two solid hours. By dark, General Johnson withdraws, which the next day... General Buell joins General Grant, and now they force the retreat of General Johnson and General Beauregard back down to Corinth, Mississippi, saving the day for the Union. The Battle of Shiloh. Just as a side note, if I had my way, every person that ever graduated from college would have to read the book Battle Cry of Freedom so that we will not repeat the mistakes that have been made in the past. A nation who does not know its history is bound to do that. Let's not go through that terrible thing again. Historians say, well, it's a Union victory, but it's hard for me to see it. So many Americans lost their lives on that battlefield. But I had the privilege calm of the day my wife and I to walk up and down that wagon road 
And in my mind's eye, I'm thinking about the battle, the life-intensive struggle that these men had between the blue and the gray. And I'm thinking, I face a great struggle, a great battle. It's not a physical battle. It's a battle for my soul. It's a battle for my mind. It's a battle for my heart. And my orders have been the same. Stand. And don't allow the devil to take over the wagon road of your heart. Don't allow the devil to come in with his minions and win the day. But you stand firm. And do everything you can to stand against the wiles of the devil and the wickedness that's being forced and put up against you. And even though it seems as time at times that it's overwhelming, still God promises to be with me. And through the course of this passage, he tells me the implements of war that I can use which will help me win the day. Because I know all by myself, I simply cannot win the victory over such a spiritual battle as this. But he tells me not only what the orders are. You're going to have to be strong stand against the wiles of the devil. But he sort of gives me some insight into the kind of enemy I've got to face. And this divine intelligence reveals, first of all, that my enemy is a powerful, crafty enemy. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. He's a crafty one. And the battle and the issue that I'm going to face is one that I face every single day. And he uses every kind of implement that he can possibly imagine against me and my soul and my desire to be with God in heaven. Now the word scheme there is a word that goes back to the idea of a a predatory type of animal. And he says now this enemy that you're up against, this enemy that wants to destroy your soul is like a predatory type of animal. He wants to get you and drag you off. And he's cunning and he's very clever and he comes in such a way that you wouldn't expect it. Satan operates on every possible way that he can in order to get me to fall victim to his schemes. God illustrates that matter for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Isn't that an interesting verse? He talks about false teachers and false apostles in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a book that talks about Paul and he defends himself and his ministry and his apostleship. And it's a great book of the Bible to talk about the uh, apostle Paul and his facing of problems and the difficulties that he faced in preaching the gospel. And in the midst of that discussion, he says in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves of Christ. And then verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Isn't that amazing? You see the schemes of the devil the enemy that I'm up against, the spiritual warfare that I'm facing, I'm facing a powerful foe that could actually try to uh, disguise himself as being one thing when really he's something else. He disguised himself as being an angel of light when really he's the devil, and he wants to destroy me and destroy my soul. I've been given a divine intelligence report to tell me something about what my enemy is like. In John chapter 8, Jesus made a statement about the enemy, the devil. 
and I need to be aware of what he's saying, and he's talking about the people of his day and the religious leaders of his day, of course, in context, but he says in John chapter 8 and 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And I made mention of something of the context there. He was a murderer and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8 and 44. I'm getting a sort of intelligence report now about the enemy that I face. He's very crafty. Change himself into an angel of light. He makes himself appear like this is such a wonderful thing that you ought to involve yourself in this. You ought to think this way. You ought to be like this. When really behind the disguise is a wicked individual, a wicked being that wants to destroy my soul. But he's a liar. He's the father of lies. John eight forty four. I understand something about how wicked he really is. He takes some of the truth and he mixes lies in with it. And he mixes that and it makes it seem so palatable and sometimes reasonable. And I look at that and I think, yeah, that's a pretty good idea that he's got going there. But it's nothing but one of the evil, crafty imaginations of the devil himself. My orders are to stand firm. I'm not going to let him cross that wagon road. I'm not going to let him take my heart. I'm not let him going to win my mind. I'm not going to let him win my soul. Because I'm involved in a great battle. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter makes mention of the fact. He tells us something that I thought about quite a bit, and it's very graphic in 1 Peter chapter 5, in the verses, verse 8 talking about the work of Satan and how he tries to destroy us, tells me more about what Satan's like and how he's going about this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. That's Peter's advice for us. Be on guard for this matter. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion. See, there's that predatory aspect again, coming out. He's like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. You've got to be ever watchful. You've got to be ever mindful because you have got a predator there. He is out there seeking to devour you. You've seen these nature shows on television, I'm sure, and I enjoy watching those things, but the power of the lion when he grabs hold of the prey and actually subdues the prey and takes them by the neck and drags them off to be devoured by the pride is likened to the lion who wants to destroy me and drag me down into hell. Now, you and I love to talk about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God, and I'm with you on that. I like to talk about those things. I like to read from the pages of the Bible how that God loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son and the great mercy of God and the great grace of God. And I'm with you on that. But I've also got to remember my adversary. He's like a roaring lion desiring to take those down into hell. And that's you and me. 
God has given us a divine intelligence report about the kind of enemy that I'm facing in this spiritual warfare. I've got to come to realize the reality of it, and I've got to come to understand something of the great enemy I face every single day where there's no let up from it, none whatsoever. Day in, day out, he's after my soul to destroy me. The father of lies, he wants to end my eternal life in hell. There's an amazing passage about this as I think about it in Matthew chapter 16. And I think that it would fit well here. And it's in the life of Jesus and in the life of Peter. And Jesus is talking to them about how he's going to suffer and die. And he's going to suffer many things by the chief priests and scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And when Peter hears all of this, he says, Lord, no. It's not going to be like that. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Mark 16. And the verse is verse 22. But then Jesus makes this interesting statement. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Now the point that Jesus to Peter is no. It's got to be this way. So crafty. Peter is voicing the view of Satan. Don't worry about the death. We're not going to let them kill you. You're not going to die. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because he was expressing the view of Satan. You see how subtle and how crafty that was. But Jesus recognized it for what it was. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're not expressing the view of God. You're expressing the view of man. It can come in such a subtle way. He's crafty. And praise be to God that Jesus died on that cross. Because today... We live in hope of eternal life based on our obedience to the gospel and the living of the new birth and the new life we have in Christ Jesus. How am I going to overcome this? I'm going to have to think about it every day. I can't just think about this one day a week. I'm going to have to be conscious of this every single day. I'm going to have to realize that there's an evil one out there who really does want to destroy me and that this spiritual dimension is very real and that this spiritual battle is very real. It's not something that I can just occasionally think about here and there, but I've got to be aware of this. Just as Peter admonished me, be alert, be mindful, be watchful because the enemy is prowling around seeking whom he may desire. How can I overcome this? I've got to put on the... I've got to come to realize that I can't do this by myself. If I depend on myself to be victorious, I will lose. But I need the help of Jesus Christ and the word of God, which God has given me. And I'd like to turn to a passage or two of this matter, and there's just no way that you can talk about this without talking about the great armor, which I'll have to talk about tonight, which the Bible instructs on. But I'd like to make mention of the fact how much I need God's help in this matter, that I cannot be...
spiritual battle. And I'm thinking of Colossians chapter 1, and there are just any number of Bible passages. I love the book of Colossians because it tells me of the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ in uh, the sufferings of Christ. The supremacy of Christ in the gospel message. The supremacy of Christ in redemption. Uh, chapter 1. The supremacy of Christ in creation. And I'll pick up with that point at about verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, verse 17. And in him all things hold together. What a great verse verse 17 is. It's all a powerful, uh, packed passage of scripture. He holds it all together without Christ. We wouldn't have the life we have or the world we have. And here's a great verse, verse 18. I'm working my way on down through verse 20. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I think that's Paul's favorite word for this book, the all-sufficiency or the preeminency of Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's the only way it's going to work. It's the only way that I'm going to be successful in fighting the enemy that I face and living successfully the Christian life is because of Christ and what Christ has done for me. Well, I'm here. I want to read chapter 2. And in Colossians chapter 2, we have this wonderful passage of scripture about being alive in Christ and you see in this paragraph that I should not follow after the teachings of man and the imagination of men but the following of Christ and the word of God see to it that no one takes you captive verse 8 by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And he's saying, in essence, Christ is all you need. Christ is all you need in order to overcome and be victorious in this spiritual battle for your heart and your soul. But you devote yourself to Christ and you devote yourself to the will of God. And you put on yourself the whole armor of God. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Putting on that armor. I just don't have time to talk about it today. Now I love the fact about the helmet of salvation. The shield of faith. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. and That sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And with God's help and with Christ's help. I can be victorious in winning the battle. I was watching a fellow on television. He's one of these psychologist type of guys, and he gives advice, and he listens to people and that kind of thing. And I'll listen for about five or ten minutes, lose interest, and go off on something else. He always makes a statement. How's that working for you? He's always coming up with it. Oh, yeah, you do? Well, how's that working for you? Let me ask that question. How are you doing on the battle for your soul? How's it working for you? Are you going to win it? Or are you going to lose it? 
Are you going to stay on the present course? If you do, will you win it or will you lose it? Are you listening to the orders of the commander? Stand and don't let the devil cross the wagon road of your heart. But no matter what he throws at you, you're going to resist it. Perhaps you haven't. Perhaps you didn't stand firm. Not a lot of brothers not standing firm. And they caved in and they gave up. Some brethren gave up so easily. You need to come back. You need to repent and change your life and live for Christ once again. If you never obeyed the gospel, do it and become a child of God. And involve yourself on the winning side of this spiritual battle. The winning side is the one who is obedient to the gospel of Christ by repenting of sin. Confessing faith in Christ and by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 2 verse 38. To live the faithful Christian chapter. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. There are times when we need to repent of our sins. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7. We repent of those sins and we turn back to Christ. If that needs to be the case, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, do it today. If you've never obeyed the gospel, become a child of God today and get on the winning side of the spiritual battle and take the weapons of this warfare. Utilize them and say no to the devil. You're not going to cross this wagon road because we've decided to stand firm. This is the spiritual battle. We will win with God's help. Will you not obey the gospel? I urge you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.